Kia ora and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. On the 21st of June 2022, a panel discussion took place to draw on the insights of our alumni working in recruitment and human resources. Hosted by Jane Fletcher, manager of the university's careers and employment team, the panel featured Julie Mitchell, head of global careers for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and Ian Kennedy, Principal Consultant at Momentum, a New Zealand-owned recruitment company. In this podcast, you'll hear them discuss current recruitment trends in Wellington, top tips for getting successfully through the recruitment process, and some general at-the-coalface advice. Good morning and welcome. So lovely to have you all in the room with us today. Thank you very much for being here. I'm Jane, manager of Tekadena Walker Careers and Employment Student Service. And I know we have a, a few um, students in the room as well as alumni, so welcome. It's my pleasure to introduce our two panelists and ask them a few questions in the next uh, 30 minutes or so. Um, but we will leave time for Q&A with, with you, the audience. Please note that we are uh, recording, audio recording uh, this session so that those who are not with us today can also uh, get to hear uh, from our lovely panellists. So, welcome to our alumni experts, Ian and Julie. So I'm going to first of all ask you to briefly introduce yourselves. We'll start with Ian. Kia ora everyone. Nice to be here this morning. Obviously, great to be back in the the old university, and come and speak to you guys about what's happening in the market and what we're seeing. Myself, I once I graduated here, I went into a, not a graduate program, but I went into a graduate role at Beef and Lamb New Zealand. Um, I did international marketing, trade marketing, a bit of policy in there as well. Um, it was quite, a, not quite an awesome role, working with emerging markets in China, which was a brand new thing. That's when, we, when New Zealand companies thought, okay, we're going to sell to China now, all of China, and then within about uh, six months of research, we realised if we connected with one suburb, we'd sell a lot more than we did anywhere else in the world. From there, I was there for a few years, and then from there, I obviously spent some time in France, about four years playing rugby. It was a professional thing that was always supposed to happen. Due to injury, it got delayed. And I came back um, looking to go back into marketing and was switched to the dark side of recruitment from a the GM at the time who I knew very, very well. And he thought that my existing connections in marketing would be a, a huge help, and it, it turns out it, it did. Um, so I've been there for nine years now, originally specialising in uh, marketing and comms, which is a booming area particularly now. On the back of COVID, obviously that's good communications has come through as something that everybody needs, not a real head scratch or why. And currently I'm managing the corporate services team at Momentum, so that encompasses marketing, comms, finance, policy, property procurement, um, HR and business support. So there's quite a few people on my team. Everybody's very, very busy at the moment. Um, there's a number of factors why that is the case, and I guess we'll talk about some of those today. What did you study, out of curiosity? Um, I did BCom Marketing Management. I had to think right back there for a second. Way yeah. back. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I'm Julie Mitchell. Um, I studied at Vic when this didn't even exist down here. <laughs> so I did the commute in from the railway station to walk up the hill. So I was thinking as I came in today, I guess how much things have grown and how nice it would have been <laughs> to be able to be right here. Um, so I studied, I did a BA, I did politics, German and European studies. At the time, I chose my courses because they interested me and I wasn't quite sure what I would do when I came out of it. But I figured if I did study on things that interested me, surely that would help me in the future. 
So uh, I came out of my degree and went, oh, what do I do now? So I went to Japan and um, taught English, and that was awesome. I think one of the things is getting that perspective on the world. Um, it's a, a lot harder now that things are a bit more locked down, but that was great. Um, so I went to Japan and taught English, and so languages, uh, cultural things were really key there. After that, did a bit of travelling and came back and worked in Australia, and that's where I got into recruitment. And it was quite a, a thought-through kind of thing, using my qualifications um, and also the things, again, that interested me. So I worked in Australia sort of a corporate services and after that I went to Ireland and I worked for a big multinational doing multilingual recruitment so again that's where the German and the politics came in and that was a fascinating thing um, so you know some of those opportunities don't necessarily exist in New Zealand but it was right place right time and managed to blag my way in. <laughs> Um, so coming back after that, um, then looking at how do you apply that to the New Zealand space. We don't have as you know big multinational, multilingual organisations here. So I got into medical recruitment. And so I, instead of, again, you had the multinational, um, and we did a lot of bringing people into New Zealand. So I worked in uh, medical recruitment for a government-funded organisation called NZ Locums that puts doctors in rural places around New Zealand. Then after that, went to a startup where we did New Zealand and Australia bringing doctors in. And then I worked for the DHB doing specialist um, medical recruitment. So after that, I was pretty tired of doctors and health and <laughs> things like that. So I went and worked at MPI. Um, so again, using a lot of that candidate experience work. And I worked as a what we called employee life cycle. So onboarding, offboarding um, and movements and transitions in between. So following on from that, um, I moved on to MFAT, where now I'm Head of Global Careers. So we oversee the recruitment, um, both in and into the organisation, to our 58 officers offshore, and also doing quite a lot of capability building through rotations internally. Great. Thank you both very much. It's uh, lovely to hear those interesting career pathways. Yeah. And that sets us up for some questions for you now, um, as these experts in recruitment. So here we are halfway through 2022, and I think we're all aware that it's a complex job market out there at the moment. So I was going to ask each of you, what do you see is happening in the job market at the moment? And we'll start with you, Julie. Okay, um, yep, as you said, no surprises that it's quite a, a different job market to what it was a few years ago. Working in government, we, I guess, are slightly different to what you'll see in private, potentially. But Wellington being Wellington, it is quite compact. I think what we're seeing in the job market at the moment is um, a lot of movement. Ian and I were just talking about, I guess, with the borders closed, it's meant that there's less people coming in from offshore. So it means it's a bit more of a job seekers market as well at the moment. We're seeing people who are coming out of uh, lockdowns who are pretty bruised, um, pretty burnt, and really taking a good look at what they want out of life. Um, so it's creating some great opportunities. I think what we're also seeing is a willingness to move. So staff are more are happy to look at what other options there are and I guess really explore that. Um, it's a bit of a tsunami, I think. I would say it's less of the great resignation and more of the great reshuffle is what we're seeing. But people also really starting to look at things like flexible working, um, part-time working, doing some additional study and various things like that. I think for graduates, it's kind of tight. There's a bit less money floating around, um, graduate programs and internships. It'll be interesting to see what happens with those in the next few years. But there's always jobs for the good people. Yeah, always jobs for the good people. So, Ian, what do you see is um, happening out there at the moment? Well, I agree with Julie. Obviously, we, we did have a conversation before, but it's hectic. I think anything from three years plus experience, we're just not seeing the people. And a lot of that is because of 
the borders are shut. People are saying, well, tourism's open. Tourism and immigration are completely different things. So there are, there are a lot of jobs out there. Uh, there aren't the people to fill them. And we're seeing at the moment with a lot of our contractors, they're moving. We've had a lot of senior contractors come back from the likes of London, uh, the States, Canada. And we've slotted them into organisations, particularly government in Wellington. And they've done a great job, but now they're off back home to see their house and their cat, which they left behind. Hopefully someone's feeding their cat. But the post-COVID world has added its own flavour. People have come back from COVID knowing that there is a shortage in people and salaries and hourly rates are going up. People aren't tending to chase that as hard as we thought they would. People are realising you know, they spend a lot of time with their family in lockdown. Um, that's what's important to them. Flexibility is huge. I'd say the average... Work week at the moment we're seeing would be two days from home, three days from work, and that's a huge change. Um, organisations, good organisations like ACC, Big Beast, prior to COVID, it would be five days in the office or nothing, even though looking at two, three days from home, which is huge, and um, it's definitely impacted the way, way people are looking for new roles. As I say, salaries are going up, but it's more around flexibility. That's where, that's where people are seeing the sort of key factors in their decision-making for the roles going forward. I'll just add, I didn't take your point that we were talking about earlier, but people are quite values-driven mm. in what they're looking for as well. That's what we're seeing, the, the why. Why am I doing this job? Am I just making someone else richer or is it giving some meaning to what I'm doing? Um, I think we're seeing a lot more of that, aren't we? Yeah, yeah and, and um, we're seeing a lot of people come from large organisations, commercial organisations, saying they want to go and um, work for particular government departments, which they feel do good things for New Zealanders and people as a whole. And that, once again, is a... I'm not saying New Zealanders were mean before that, but people are a lot more community-focused, community-oriented since they've come out of COVID, which has been pretty amazing to see, actually. Yeah, and that's, that sort of is a good segue into um, asking you, Ian. You were talking to me about um, candidates that come to see you often are asking about the differences between a career in the public sector versus the private sector, and what about moving between two of them? Mm. So... Ian, could you enlighten us a little bit on this and what you say to candidates about the differences? Absolutely. I think in the nine years I've been in this role, I've seen some huge changes. When I first started, you were pretty much either a commercial person or you're a government person. And there was probably, you know, people would look at government and go, oh, you know, dreary work, um, long days at the office, no flexibility. And you know, as I've just mentioned, that's changed markedly. What's also changed hugely is the government pay very well not just owing to shortages, but they promote internally, they look internally first, you know, they're always looking for the next talent coming up. So I think there's a lot more positivity towards moving to government, and I think that's a great thing. There's some amazing programs going on, there's always change, that's Wellington. But commercial organisations have, have got a lot less in the time I've been here. I'm saying that I've been speaking to the crew here about how we're hearing that, you know, the likes of ANZ, BNZ are moving a lot more of their function back to Wellington, owed to housing prices, how much different the housing prices are, I don't know. But they can't get the talent they need up there, so they're looking to move further south, moving marketing elements of marketing and comms teams back, which are massive for them, the finance teams. So that speaks well to opportunities for graduates, people a couple of years into their working life. Yeah, great. And sort of thinking about the talent acquisition on the um, sort of larger organisation, like NTAC, which straddles both local and global careers, could you tell us a little bit about how someone could get to work for MFAT and what are the opportunities? Sure. So we have different job families. Not all roles are going to get posted offshore. So our foreign policy stream is probably our largest. Um, so th those are the roles that we have people moving onshore and offshore. Foreign policy 
It's, it's huge and it encompasses quite a wide range of things that we do at MFAT from security to trade to bilateral, multilateral development, legal and I think it'll always be slightly changing. Traditionally, we had a requirement that people had to have a double degree. Um, that doesn't exist anymore. We do value languages, but it's not a prerequisite, but it will help you get a job, <laughs> especially if it's in one of our hard-to-find languages. So that foreign policy stream, we tend to bring people on as graduates. We advertise that at the start of the year um, for people to come on in November and February. We also run an internship program over the summer. We have about 12 to 18 internships that we offer for people to come in. Um, for us, it's quite a good try before you buy. Kind of gives people a bit of an idea of what they're getting themselves into. We are also, this is a plug, This is we're going to be doing a mid-level recruitment round soon. Um, so if you are three years to eight years, eight, nine years experience, we would be interested in hearing. So that's our foreign policy stream. Um, there are people who come, traditionally it's been a career for life kind of thing. People stay a long time and that's how you get to be an ambassador. What we're seeing is changes in the market. Um, we want people to have broader perspectives. We want people to be able to start at the ministry, go somewhere else, come back and do some interesting things. Um, so we're really working, I guess, on making it what we call more porous. For our leadership roles, generally we look for people who have offshore experience previously um, and we tend to promote from within, as you said, but we do have a number of specialist roles as well. So there are roles where we have people who are gender equity specialists, um, energy specialists, and those sort of thematic areas that support our development. Um, we have legal areas where we do um, international trade law, um, where we also look for specialists. So while people think of MFAT and diplomats, we have a huge other part of us. Development is about 30% of our organisation, um, so that's working in the Pacific, helping on aid projects, building runways in Niue, so we look for people with um, program management quite a lot in those areas, and again, it can all be taught, so we tend to try and get our people in and grow them. But on top of that, we have a massive corporate area. Um, I work in people division, there's 62 of us, so that's your traditional kind of HR, and then we have all your other traditional things, finance, IT, all sorts. So there's, there are a lot of opportunities, and as Ian said, we do tend to look to promote from within as well. It's super interesting, and it's really interesting seeing, you know, just thinking about Wellington and New Zealand, although we're small, we've still got a lot of diverse opportunities from, from those startups mm -hmm. through to those larger organisations. Mm -hmm. And so don't all leave the country, please, yeah. um, just yet. <laughs> so just before we move to uh, questions from you guys, from the audience, I'm interested to hear from both of you, what would you say, let's say the top three or so key skills that are in demand at the moment? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I think keeping an open mind. So moving into a, an organisation, when, particularly when you're less experienced, it's about going in there, getting, getting experience, and you can sort of figure out what it is you need to do. We don't do a heck of a lot of junior roles at our organisation, but when we do, they tend to be slotting into a programme or a project. So it's a great opportunity, but people will say, no, I studied this, I'm only doing this. Go in, get the experience, and you can always move towards what it is you want. Who knows where you end up in five years? I mean, most people start something. Um, you've had a lot of people come in and, as contractors, you know, comms, senior comms people, and they end up as program managers a couple of years down the line. They thought, I never would have thought I was going to end up being a program manager. But it's about having an open mind. You'll always get to where you want to go, but who knows what you want in a couple of years. I totally agree with you. Um, I guess working in my area, you see CVs all the time, and I'm constantly fascinated about the trajectories and the career paths that people have done. My tip is take that first job 
you just need some experience under your belt. We're always a little bit wary of untested people and that's because work's hard. You've got to get up in the morning in the rain and go into work. You might have had a dreadful day the day before and you're feeling really low and you've just got to suck it up and go in and turn up and deliver. Um, you might get setbacks, you might get things that don't fit with your values or what you want to do. That's life and that's kind of part of being an employee. So probably one of the things that we look for is resilience and the ability to roll with the punches kind of self-evaluate, um, learn from it, and to grow is a really important part. And any feedback, negative or positive, it is a gift. So take it on board and keep growing and learning. So we look at that uh, resilience as probably one of our number one things. And some of that is we're coming through from the pandemic. Our people have had to deal with all sorts of crises, not just that volcanoes blowing up in Tonga. We have to step up a, um, an ECC. Um, we've had the Afghanistan thing, now we've got the Ukraine. So we're looking for people who can really kind of roll with it and deal with it. So I think, you know, looking at what you can do to help kind of put things into perspective is really good. Initiative for me, so when people say, what do you look for? Initiative. Um, I want someone who can come in and kind of work it out themselves. We're all busy, got 101 things to do. So when someone can come in and if I can give them a task um, and they say, oh, I don't know how to do that. And I think, if I knew how to do it, I'd do it myself. We kind of joke about if it's not on the front page when you Google something, people kind of give up. So it's that kind of initiative, inquisitiveness, thinking about what else somebody needs. You know, if there's something that needs to be done, why are they asking for this? It might be something else that can be added in. Um, and that really helps kind of get you ahead and helps you to keep learning. So resilience, initiative, and probably curiosity. The world's changing. Technology is always going to be moving on, um, but the why, how does this link in, what am I learning from this, how is this going to affect something else that's happening down the track, yeah, those are the things that I would look for. I think in line with keeping, keeping that open mind as to that mm. early opportunity is doing your research, knowing where you're going, as opposed to knowing the organisation you're going into, as opposed to the direct role as the sort of main driver. Getting a good manager early is so crucial. I had an amazing manager. He was terrifying, but he was amazing. He had a lot of time for me. And even even with senior people, we're placing, placing GMs and they go in under CEs they believe in. People they know will help them and they'll have a great relationship. And there's a huge, huge benefit to having a great leader. Yeah, seizing those opportunities and, and being open and, and curious. So being curious... We're going to now throw it open to you, Gar, to, uh, to ask some questions. Who would like to ask a question? Um, I was just wondering if you had any tips about negotiating your salary, especially if you haven't done that before. Absolutely. I think what is crucial when people are afraid to do is ask the salary, always ask the salary at the start. We've had people go through processes and then get to the end or have heard about this and they hadn't known what they and, and then they're getting absolutely low-balled at the end. Um, feel free to ask that in the first interview. People are afraid to. They think they'll blow their chances. Not the case. There's a lot of competition for, for good people these days at all levels, and it's a two-way street. They need to be selling the role to you as much as you need to be selling yourselves to them. And that money's a crucial thing. Let's not pretend it's not. It's important to know what you're in line for. So feel free to ask that. Um, ask the HR people you're dealing with beforehand, before the meeting. If they don't give you any idea or they don't give you a bracket, I'd call that a red flag. Yeah, I'd agree. Recruitment agencies are your friend as well. You know, they'll be able to help kind of guide you on what you're worth. Yeah, reading ads, have a look at Seek, see what people are paying. Um, that's a really good one. Hayes Salary Guide um, is also quite useful to get a bit of an indication. I always say to people, always ask, always say, can I have a bit more? Or, you know, have an idea in your mind. Ask once and they'll probably say no. And then ask, what else can I get? Can I get 
some training. We used to ask for flexibility, but now it comes with it. So what non-monetary things as well? That's what I always say. And then stop. Just don't keep hammering it because you'll really annoy people. <laughs> but always ask, yeah. And, and those valued things have, have a value as well, mm. so, uh, as well as the salary. Um, so the place in which you're working and yeah. those, those add-ons and the, mm. the training. Um, so who else has a question? Interview process, how any pointers and tips? Because some organizations are transitioning to doing not in-person interviews, online questionnaires, things where you have to, you, you have a certain time period to answer a question, record yourself and submit it. Yeah, we do that. <laughs> <laughs> My tips for interviews is, is have an idea of what we're going to be asking. The position description will give a really good outline of the kinds of things that we're looking for. Read through the advert as well. Usually the indicators are there of what kinds of things we're going to be asking. When we do video interviews, it is hard. Um, so we do them for our head of missions as well. They freak out. Um, I actually think our grads do better than our heads of missions. So what we're really looking for in that is just seeing how you can think on your feet, being articulate as best as you can. Um, we know that it's really tough as well. So um, we've had things where people's cameras have fallen over or the cat's walked across the screen or things like that. It's okay. We get it. Life happens. But I think being prepared and thinking about what you're going to be looking for. So knowing the time frame, it's kind of having your clock kind of ready to know what's happening and being succinct rather than waffly is what I'd say. So you don't have to use the whole time, but use what you can. But usually we'll have a fairly good idea of what people are looking for. In terms of video interviews, it's pretty standard and I think we're going to see it for a while. We were just talking about it. Um, for us, it's been great for sustainability. Instead of flying people around all over the place, we can do it online and it makes things a lot easier. But it is a lot harder to engage with a video interview and, you know, I think being prepared. Um, some people feel a bit more relaxed because they're at home, they're in their living room and that's fine. It's okay to be relaxed, but making sure that you come across in the way that you want to project, that's what I would say. Yeah, I think I can speak more to the the live video uh, interview, we've done a lot of processes for quite senior roles, and invariably you do lose a little bit. It's just that ability to engage. Obviously, you both start talking at the same time on a video call. That happens all the time, and that can slow things down and make it a bit jaunty. But I think with video calls, it's all about preparation and yeah, keeping things succinct, knowing what you want to say. Also, prepare for every part of the job description as well as you can, but also prepare to say what you think your weakness going to that role is going to be. Everyone's got areas for development. It stumps everybody when you ask them what it is in that role they'd like to learn more about. So know the area you're weakest in because they'll know. They'll have an idea. And if you front that, that to me is a strength. It's just about preparation. I'd say to look at how you can connect. We hire people we like. We hire people we want to have on our team, mentor people who we see potential in. So it's that little bit of chit-chat at the start, how you can kind of connect in with people, ask them some questions, show your personality. Often video interviews can be quite wooden and it's quite hard. You think, well, I, I know a bit about maybe what their work is or what they think, but I don't know much about them. And I think the traditional things, I'm a big fan of someone emailing me afterwards and saying thanks for the interview, you know, really appreciate it or something. It's, uh, you know, you don't have your standard in-person thing, but it's all, that, all about trying to connect where you can. Also remembering that um, the people interviewing you, professional interviewers, you might deal with recruiters who want to dive down the computer and have a beer with you, and they're used to asking you questions and, and figuring out how to make you at ease so they can get the information. You'll be dealing with some senior managers who are interviewing you who don't interview for a living, and they might come across as wooden, they might come across as scary, but often they're just as nervous as you are. So if you can find a way to put the person at ease, 
with a, something in common and you do find it in, that's, that's always nice. And actually, that's a good point. If, uh, I'm sure some of the alumni here today have been the interviewers on interview panel. And uh, if you ever get a chance to do that or be asked to go in on, on an interview panel, it's a really good experience mm. uh, for your own learning as well for mm. the next time you're in an interview. Mm. Um, so, any more questions? Hi there. Uh, first off, thank you so much for being generous with your time on a random Tuesday morning. My question is a step before the interview process. In large organizations, I suppose you get tons of CVs and things like that. How do you make, do you have any tips on how to make your CV stand out and how you can help your personality come through in those sort of blank documents type thing? That's a very, very good question. It's, it's very, very hard to make a CV stand out. What I would sort of advise against is too many graphs with you saying what percentage you think you are in this and what percentage you think you are in this. Just make it factual, make it genuine. Always open with a great blurb about yourself. Um, this is who I am. This is what I've been doing. This is what I want to do. And then keep it relatively simple. It is always hard to get through the crowd um, and CVs, and that's why a lot of people use the likes of us. It's just the relationship with the direct manager. But what do you think in a pile of CVs? I mean, you'd see this a lot more than I would for... Yeah, we, for our graduate recruitment program, we get about twelve to 1,500 CVs for 25 roles. So there's a lot that goes in there. As Anne said, you know, you see a lot of CVs, and so some stand out for good reasons and some stand out for bad reasons. We had a shirtless guy on a CV this year. <laughs> he, he stood out, but... Uh, I wonder if it was the same guy I we've don't. had. <laughs> <laughs> he's a couple of different versions as well. Yeah, probably. It's good stuff. Uh, it's just not that professional, I guess. <laughs> For me, you know, when you're going through so many CVs, straight away you just kind of want to get to the heart of what you want. When you're doing a lot of CVs, you also get kind of judgy. If there's typos, as you said, sort of weird kind of template things that actually don't tell you a lot, what I go to straight away is what experience have they had and what have they done. So even things like capabilities and your strengths, to me those are just words on a page. So I always actually scan right through and go to what have you last done, where do those things kind of come through. In terms of personality, that little blurb at the start is great. It's, it's interesting, you know, when you're reading through so many CVs, you kind of go, oh, this person sounds good. And also in there you can put some of the key things that we want or that you know that the employer is looking for, yeah. But it is quite hard to get cut through, so um, succinct, accurate. I'm kind of fan of bullet points, um, you know, a little blurb about the role and that you've done and some bullet points of your key achievements helps kind of paint a picture for me. I'll also put months, not just years, because we're looking at that. Were you there for, you know, 12 months or were you there for one month? Um, so straight away we start asking questions in our head about what the actual experience you've done. And don't be afraid to talk yourself up as well. A lot of people feel really humble or they don't want to, yeah, go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we do so many interviews where the person sits there and they're very shy and they say, I don't want to talk myself up. I was like, if ever you have to talk yourself up, <laughs> go now. Um, LinkedIn is crucial as well. Make sure that matches what you have said in your CV. A lot of people, it's very, very different. Yeah. And yeah, as Julia sort of said, timeframes. If it's a shorter time frame and it's a contract, say contract, say work experience, say professional development. Uh, just make that clear because people who jump around a lot will fall to the bottom of the pack. But if it's contract, completely different. Great tips. And I think um, sometimes you might think, why am I doing this blurb at the top? But the cover letter can get separated from mm. the CV in the process. So it's always good to have, mm. have a little something, isn't it? Yeah. I do like a cover letter as well. well good yeah. Cover letter. Yeah, yeah, good cover letter. Cover letter tells me the why. Why do you want the job? Um, it's also a screening tool to see if you can write and your grammar and your spelling's right and that you've not said 
um, I'm really excited about this job at MB. You know, you'll be surprised at the amount of typos that you see, but it's a really good indicator of, I guess, what the why. Personalising the cover letter is, is a crucial one. Have we got time for one more? Okay. Great. Oh, good. Uh, thanks, Julie. Look, I think that's a really good point you just um, gave in terms of how do you stand out. Because I think one one thing I just want to pass on to a lot of the graduates here: don't downplay yourself with your CV. You know, even though you're doing part-time jobs, there's still some things that you need to emphasize. What you've achieved out of those roles as well, and that's something I pass on to my men my mentee here, Olivia. My question is, given the job market as it is, uh, given how tight some competitions are, how much emphasis in government are there still in terms of cultural diversity, ethnicity, and also promoting women in leadership? It's still very much front and centre. That's huge. And um, a lot of organisations have formed sort of centralised diversity inclusion shops, and we've put a lot of people into that, those sort of roles. And Obviously, women in leadership is, is, is crucial. We see that coming through, but diversity in leadership is, is the next thing. Mm. And there's a lot of interesting work going on. I know MFAT um, are doing some good work on that now. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking when I came here, what's the best thing you can do to get a job? And I'd say learn today. <laughs> um, cultural competency is huge. And we hire what we don't have. So when we go out to market, we look at what we don't have. We have plenty of people who, um, you know, foreign policy people, your traditional kind of person, um, but we don't have enough languages. We don't have enough diversity. Um, we don't have enough cultural competency. So those are the things that we actively target. So anybody with a priority language, anyone who can speak Mandarin, anyone who can speak Arabic, really keen to hear from you. But it's also those life experiences. Like you said, part-time job's great. We want to know that people are happy to roll up their sleeves and get in and do it, but also to understand what you've learned from those things. Women in leadership is huge for us as well. What we're really seeing is how do we also adapt our jobs to make them more family-friendly, and that goes for both women and men in leadership, but really looking at championing. Um, we call it active career management, so our really strong performers who come from a more diverse background. We actively look at how we can support people. Mentoring's great, but also looking to help encourage people, I guess, to see themselves how we see them. And I think a lot of that is um, it's, it's bang on. And it's not about being a Māori person yourself. It's yeah. about having a strong understanding of te ao Māori and the way things have done traditionally. And exposure to te reo is always going to help you. And a lot of people get upset and go, oh, I'm not going to get this because I'm this ethnicity or I'm this. And I was like, that's not the case at all. We've placed a lot of people into roles where they've asked for that, just a strong understanding of te ao Māori or interest in furthering yourself. A lot of organisations offer a lot of lessons. Mm. We've had it ourselves and it's awesome. It's made really, really fun and opens your eyes quite a bit. So it's just about being open to that way of thinking. Great. I think we have another question on this side. Yep. I figure being in recruitment, you guys have, like we touched on earlier, like read a lot of um, different cover letters and stuff, right? And I've always been two minds of it. You could spend the entire cover letter literally just writing about like how your current experience relates to this and this thing in the outline, right? But like... What is actually better? What makes it really stand out? Like, is it the little bit of personality coming through combined with the experience, or is it mostly just kind of talking about yourself and your interests and stuff? Like, what's a good split, I guess? What stands out to you guys? Are you talking about the introduction in the CV or cover letters? Oh, uh, no, cover letters specifically. Roles. So okay. introduction in the CV, like, I get it. You know, you can write a blurb by yourself. Yeah, I yeah, go yeah. spearfishing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get it. I think, to be honest, Probably not looking for that much personality in that cover letter. It's just more about the relevant skills or experiences you've had that make you more relevant to that role. 
I think personality, we can get a little, uh, personality and skills and interests. And there's always always a point in putting your interests in your CV at the bottom, if they aren't too out the gate, because um, <laughs> we do get that too. But you know that also leads to possible connections with employers. But I think in the cover letter, it's basically about addressing what their key needs are and what your key skills are and what you think you can bring, even an area in that JD you've seen that you're not as good at that you'd love to develop. Yeah, a lot of cover letters, when you're reading a whole lot of them, it's an I, 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 me, 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 I'm this, I'm that, and blah, blah, blah. Whereas what we really want to see is how the I and me applies to the role and to the organisation. Um, so things like, as you said, reading reading the JD, knowing what it is, but really applying what you've done and how it applies to the organisation, how it applies to our strategic goals and what we're looking for and growing in the future. So a lot of people just will list, I'm this and I've done that and I'm blah, blah, blah. But what I want to know is, I know that MFAT is really looking for people who have a passion for climate change because it's something that we want to do for the future. In my previous role, I did blah, 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 and that's how it goes there, or I studied blah, 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 and that's how it applies. So it's really linking it back to your understanding of the organisation and what they want to achieve, and it's a way of showing that your values are aligned, um, showing that you kind of know what you're getting yourselves into, but it shows that you've also done your homework. The personality thing, I love reading people's hobbies, just by the way. I, I don't know why, I guess when you see so many CVs, it's just fascinating. My favourite one is experimenting with different kinds of pancakes. Someone actually put that on their CV and it stuck in my mind. And I got her in for an interview because I wanted to know, like, what kind of pancakes do you make? <laughs> um, but it is that personal connection thing and I think a bit of that personality side. So, But yeah, really understanding the organisation and showing that you, you get it. Um, I guess I've been hearing quite a bit about how it's less important to study something that puts you exactly onto a direct path and you can move around a lot more. Um, is it a concern if people have studied in something and then gone on something a bit different and try to hop back over with a degree that's a bit old in that field? Like if they've done something not policy and then want to use their policy degree and that's like five, ten years old, or is it more important that someone's gone and got mm -hmm. some kind of job experience somewhere else, even if it's not in exactly the same field? I think... Um a lot of people see as a degree as something to get your foot in the door. And, and don't get me wrong, it helps a lot. It helps a lot. But when you go into a role, I think my point before about the generalist thing is you'll come in with a certain set of skills. You know, you work, you, you work to, a, to a point where you go, either I want to try something else or this is morphing to something else and a manager in the building has gone, you've got some great skills, come work for me. I don't think anything's ever going to preclude you from going back to something you love. And having a, having a background in that, you know, a degree in that's going to help a lot. But I think more our point before is you, you get involved in something and then you find you have a passion for a small element of what it is you're doing and you take off that way. So you can end up way over there when you started over here, but it's normally in a, a really positive way. Mm. I hope I answered your question. Yeah, I think a degree is really a foot in the door um, and you learn a lot of transferable skills in a degree. So I haven't studied HR, I have no formal training in it and I've learned a lot on the job and through improvement. Um, but the skills that really... Writing, judgment, understanding people, um, seeing different perspectives, those things have all been invaluable. And that's what I've learnt during my degree. My sister's studying at the moment. She's doing Masters of Public Policy. And it's quite funny because she talks to me about the rumours and people are saying, oh, you have to study this course here because that's what MFAT's looking for. 
And she calls me and says, is that true? And I say, no. Um, we don't even look at what courses people have done a lot of the time. You know, we look when we get down to the more granular level. But it's what you get as a whole, and we look for really very much the whole package. So if you've jumped around, if you've done different things, that's fine. We want to see that you've completed your degree. But I would probably look at it going, oh, they've tried a bunch of different things. They've probably got a broad experience. Um, probably what we want less is one person who's just done one thing, and that's it. You know, some careers will be a bit more aligned to that kind of thinking, but, yeah, it would definitely not be a hindrance. Right, we'll have a last question. Thank you. I've actually got two, but I'll, I'll <laughs> refrain. Oh, can I sneak in two? Is that all right? Oh, thank you. So for the language section, is it okay to be self-taught or is it more important to show on your CV that, you know, you've gone through an institution and actually learned it? in a, like a correct manner and also I found when I was applying for internships a lot of them had very broad things that they were looking for but not really like specifics about the role and I understand that's because like we don't know what we're going to be put into but it, when you're going for it you're like what can I bring to this because I'm not sure exactly what role I'm going to be put into so there's that little tug of war there is that common like how do you overcome that? Yeah, I'll let you in on a secret. So internships are really hard for us to organise. Right. <laughs> it's a real challenge because it's a two-way thing. Internships for us are gold. We learn so much from our interns. Um, so don't ever forget that. I love having interns. They teach me all sorts of things. But it is quite a struggle for us to try and arrange it. It's over Christmas, so we all want to take our summer holidays. Interns do as well. But it's, so it's also looking at um, what, what they need. So I when I do an internship or organising that, I'm usually looking for someone to have a project that's an ongoing thing so that they can chip away and do that while I'm having my summer holiday so that's good but then I also look to have a sort of a program I guess where we're looking to involve our interns and just coming along just attending things coming to meetings being involved and doing the, the tasky things that come up so the reason why it can be quite hard is because we often don't know what's going to be pressing. It's often come about sort of November, December that I think, oh, this will be the project that I want the intern to do because this is what's most pressing right now. So at the moment, we're in the process of looking at what internships we're going to be able to offer. We're going out to the organisation to say, what things are you going to be needing doing? Um, and we really make sure that our internships have a really solid experience. There's no point just getting an intern in and they come and kick around and do some emails. We actually want to be able to give you guys a good experience. Um, so it is quite hard to know ahead of time. It's often closer to when we get to that end piece there. Does that answer your question? Um, so, but feel free to ask, I think, you know, what sort of things might I be doing? So for us, if someone's in the trade area, they might be writing a paper on something. We had someone in the um, trade law and they were doing sort of a, a big review of a document, whereas we had an intern with us in HR and they were doing analysis and reporting. So it, it kind of depends on which area you go to. Um, in terms of languages, it doesn't matter. So, you know, we, we teach languages as well. We invest heavily in our staff, so language aptitude is a big thing. So if you have self-taught, awesome, because you'll be doing really, really well if we send you to a formal thing. When we're sending staff to China, if they don't already have Mandarin, we actually pay for them to do two years full-time language training in Taiwan at the moment um, to become fluent. So 
from two years you go from woe to go and then um, go and work there. We do similar for Arabic and a bunch of other languages. Six months of Spanish if you're going to go and live in a Spanish-speaking country. But it's that aptitude thing. So at the moment we've got people who have lived in Korea who um, do a shorter version of the Mandarin to go and work there. And so the great thing then is you've got uh, more regional knowledge um, of those different things. Okay, great. Um, thank you very much. And um, on behalf of Tehereng Awoka and the Alumni and Engagement team, um, thank you so much to Julian Ian uh, for, for today's session. Thank you very much. with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Tekoki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Teheringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere Rā.